Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some tough topics sometimes. Today, I don't think it's, well, kind of a tough topic, but not as tough as some, because we're going to kind of get to know uh, the associate director and the program called the Safe and Together Institute. Welcome, Heidi Rankin. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to join you. Well, I'm glad you're here. And uh, we have something in common. We both graduated from the program at UC Denver. And uh, you're, you're a more recent graduate than I am. I graduated way back in, what, 2008, I think. And, oh, well, uh, I followed you in 2010. Well, there you go. There you go. So from that, I presume you're way younger than me. <laughs> that, uh, from Don't that, count the fact on it. That it seems like everybody on the face of the earth is way younger than me. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, and I must say the director of the program is Barb Paradiso, who's been on our show a couple of times. Your voice is remarkably similar to Barb. Oh, well, I take that as a compliment. So, Thank you. Yeah. Well, she, you know, it's very interesting. It kind of took me by surprise. I thought, wait a minute, did I, did I dial Barb? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I uh, have uh, only met you via email, and you sent out an email to the uh, program on, on domestic violence, and they are having their 20th anniversary next year, and so they're doing all sorts of planning, et cetera, and you responded to one of those, those uh, emails, and so what piqued my interest about your email is you said, first of all, that you're the associate director with the Safe and Together Institute, and I'm going, hmm. Safe and Together Institute. I have not heard that before. And then you said, you threw out this tickler, you may have heard about the Safe and Together model, focusing on the intersection of domestic violence and child maltreatment. And my spidey sense went boing, boing, boing. Of course, <laughs> there are intersections there. So right. why don't you start at the beginning. Um, how, did you, how did you get involved with this? And then we'll talk more about what that, may, what, what that program means. Sure. Um, I have been working in the uh, domestic violence and sexual violence field for uh, close to 30 years, and um, and I've done that work in Eastern Canada and in um, uh, and in the U.S. and uh, and during that. Um, during that work, I, it was inevitable as I was doing either frontline um, service provision or, or creating policies and legislation, um, that kind of thing, that, uh, that I began doing some kind of collaboration with the child protection agencies um, as we were, uh, it wasn't unusual that, uh, that we, my agency or even I personally, were offering um, services to survivors and their children who um, were engaged in the child protection system. So there was um, there was a, a sort of a, a natural fit that um, that it seemed that we were serving the same clients. 
um, and that there was there were ways that we were hearing from survivors that they were not feeling you know validated or acknowledged um, in the child protection system uh, and it began to intrigue me and when I was uh, in fact around the time just uh, just after I finished my uh, program um, at UC Denver, uh, I started uh, doing some peripheral work with the Safe and Together Institute um, and doing and, and hearing some of the training and one of my colleagues was beginning to do more work with them and I was truly intrigued. It was the first time that I really heard um, uh, really sort of uh, the about the intersection that really made sense to me talking about it from a perpetrator pattern based approach. Um, and hmm. when I finished okay, my... Minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, okay. you're blowing oh, me away. Okay. Perpetrator pattern-based approach. Oh, you're saying all these wonderful right. things that are just getting me so excited. But I want to <laughs> interrupt for just a second because you had sure. very gently said something about um, the uh, feelings of uh, domestic violence victims um, and the child protective system, how they were not, I believe you said, validated or something. Um, I've actually been hearing some really hideous horror stories about the intersection of the intimate partner violence uh, victims and child protective services um, from uh, other parts of the country. Um, I was surprised when you were kind of gentle about characterizing that relationship. Is it, I mean, in my view, it's pretty bad. I mean, starting with, you know, courts requiring women to, um, you know, to allow access to a perpetrator father and yet um, Child Protective Services saying, oh, if you allow access to this, this father, uh, we'll take away your child. I mean, I've heard some real horror stories. Can you talk a little bit more about that relationship between Child Protective Services and domestic violence victims? I would be delighted to. Uh, and, and I can say that uh, earlier in my career, uh, I would have, uh, I, I also had a bit of a bias Around uh, child protection and their um, and their interactions with survivors, um, until I started working with them and understanding a little more about um, good intentions and fear and um, anxiety about child safety, and seeing really clearly that what that there was a huge gap in what they understood about domestic violence and what survivors were doing towards the safety and well-being of their children, and that coming from a place of, of fear and liability, um, that they were making decisions that really were so myopic and, and were really holding, and still do, hold survivors responsible for perpetrators' choices and behaviors. And the niche that the Safe and Together model works in, uh, the entire goal is to be um, changing practice and doing paradigm shifts in the child protection system to um, to support them to um, to have better skills around um, partnering with survivors around um, uh, working with perpetrators around uh, really their assessment lens their documentation lens their interviewing lens their case planning lens in all those areas they feel ill-equipped to be doing the work from another way. And when, um, when in, and I do a, a lot of training with them, and it's really 
so encouraging to be in rooms with people who I think have one of the hardest jobs. Um, I have a, a lot of respect for the responsibility they have, but to see that paradigm shift, that penny dropping when they realize that, in fact, they have been doing the practice wrong and that they didn't know how to do it differently and and have been coming from a and, – and are trained into – a failure to protect paradigm um, against the survivor. So in other words, again, holding survivors responsible for perpetrators' choices and telling them if you let him in, if you get back with him, if you um, expose your children to domestic violence, we'll take your children. Um, one of the worst threats I can imagine in the world. I just, you know, uh, as a mom, I just can't even imagine what that would be like. Um, and so this approach is really about turning all that on its head. Okay. Now explain to me more about how, what, what is this approach? And then we'll talk about how it evolved. Sure. So, uh, so this approach, um, I, I can tell you that a, um, a sort of a, a core baseline training is four days long. So it's fairly intensive and it's, and it's, um, specifically focused on practice change. So it does not stay at the theoretical level. It's really about giving um, child protection workers, advocates who work with, um, with clients who are engaged with child protection, um, service providers, substance abuse providers, mental health providers, all of these um, uh, agencies and organizations that touch the lives of those engaged with child protection need to be coming from a lens where we call it a perpetrator pattern, survivor strength, and child-centered approach. So it's about keeping children's safety and well-being at the center of the work and doing the work from when I, I commented before about a perpetrator pattern-based approach. So no matter who we are talking to or interviewing or we are and keeping kids at the center of that work, we're doing it from a framework where perpetrators are responsible for their behaviors. And the uh, goal is to create case plans and service plans um, where we have uh, done our best with carrots or sticks around motivating perpetrators to change their behaviors. Because if we're not intervening with perpetrators around their behaviors and their choices, then we can never expect a different result for children. So survivors can be doing you know, jumping off buildings in a single bound, they can be doing heroic efforts towards the safety and the well-being of their children. But if the source of risk um, and safety concerns are uh, landed with the perpetrator's behaviors, then that's what has to change in order for us to, um, to be assured of child um, safety and well-being. And well-being is an important piece of this. It's not just about safety, but it's about child and family functioning. It's not... Um, it's it, keeping the kids at the center. We often deal with this kind of work, and, uh, and child protection is still challenged to think about it as an adult-to-adult -adult issue. Um, perpetrators would like us to stay in a place where we see it as an adult-to-adult -adult issue or a relationship issue. This has nothing to do with my children. Um, this is all because, you know, my partner did or didn't do this or this or that. I never meant anything to happen to my children. And what this is all about is doing that kind of assessment um, and, and documentation and planning around how perpetrators' choices and behaviors are impacting 
children and their family functioning. So if you think about um, children, you know, to, to date, we really have been thinking about if children don't see or hear domestic violence, then they are not dealing with the trauma. And, you know, we're not worried about them. Um, we don't have to stay involved with that family if that child is staying mostly with grandma or is with grandma on the weekends when things seem to happen. Um, we've been stuck in those places without really doing an assessment of what is harm to kids around domestic violence and what is the impact of that harm on children. And that's what really needs to be front and center if we're going to be doing assessment around are children safe um, and, and can we close a case so that we are not concerned about the children anymore and how do we do that? What do we actually do around that? And so there's lots of tools that we um, train on and that we offer around um, mapping perpetrators' patterns of behavior, around mapping survivors' strengths and protective capacity. When you say mapping uh, perpetrators' behavior, what, what does that consist of? It's, it's a very specific tool that guides um, workers or, or collaborative, you know, multidisciplinary meetings or, or supervisors and workers that really takes them through a process to identify the perpetrator's patterns of behaviors, identify the harm to children and not just physical harm, um, and to identify what the survivor's strengths and protective capacities are within the context of the perpetrator's behaviors, and to also look at what the impact on the children is, which is different than harm. Harm might be, um, harm would be if a child sees a parent arrested. Harm would be if a child hears one parent, the perpetrator, um, name-calling the survivor or, or telling the, the survivor, usually the mom, um, that they're, you know, not worthy and, and calling them names, that's harm to children. When we talk about impact, we're talking about the impact can be behaviorally or educationally or socially, um, that kids are impacted by, um, by the harm that is created from the perpetrator's behaviors. And then one more thing that is a really important piece of the mapping um, process in this particular tool, there are many, but this is a really uh, a foundational, is the intersection of domestic violence and substance abuse and mental health. Because what we know is that um, in cases, we hear up to 80% of child protection cases um, that involve domestic violence also have issues around uh, from the perpetrator or the survivor or the child, behavioral health issues, substance abuse issues, mental health issues, and we can't be doing that work in silos. That's a really important piece of the work that we do because we traditionally do. The, you know, the, whoever has a substance abuse issue is sent out to, for substance abuse services Whoever has a mental health issue, and it could be both, could be uh, all three, then they're sent for services. But not there's not a connection made um, between the domestic violence and those other issues. So, in other words, is there any is there assessment being done around if the perpetrator is causing those issues, or exacerbating those issues, or maybe interfering with treatment? So many layers of assessment being done to really get the narrative about what's happening. Okay. It sounds to me like you have an intersection with court services. Is that true? 
Um, yes. Now, you know, in our piece of the world, we would in, encourage when we're doing training, and if Child Protection is bringing us in for training, we encourage always that the audience is diverse. So we would encourage them, if they're Child Protection, we encourage them to bring in domestic violence advocates um, who are working with clients. We encourage them to bring in the court systems so that, because what this, what happens when this practice changes is that there's a change in language, there's a shift in language that we would like everyone to be hearing and seeing and using. There's also a shift in documentation and we want to, that to be shared. And what we hear from court systems is that for years, what they're getting for documentation, which is all they have to work with, um, is that they're seeing in documentation that there's a history of domestic violence or that the couple engages in domestic violence, which gives them zero picture about what's actually happening and a zero picture about how are we going to be assessing the safety and well-being of this child? Can this child be in this home? Um, you know, what are our worries? What are our what are you putting in place for interventions? Um, what are some uh, um, some possibilities for interventions? What what um, what agencies? What systems are engaging perpetrators who can be part of the accountability around behavior change? So it definitely is a um, um, you know, a multidisciplinary approach um, to families who are engaged with the well, child protection system. Okay, so it sounds to me like your main role as an organization is training and dealing with uh, organizations that have to make these kinds of decisions. Um, or are, do you do uh, direct service? We do not do direct service. We do support okay. around that. So we do, um, you know, sort of various things. I would say training is one of the um, the, the most um, frontline kind of things that we do. We also do organizational assessment to really determine, you know, where an agency might be in their practice. Um, we do, um, again, we train around using tools and we offer support around doing that. We, um, we also... Um, do uh, evaluation uh, around these kinds of issues to see about um, actual change and being able to um, to con confirm change when practice changes. Do outcomes change for families and particularly for kids? Uh, and so it's a, a bigger picture in that kind of a way. Um, but training would be foundational. We have online learning courses um, and then we have um, in-person training, which would be all the way from the sort of the core training that I told you about training for supervisors. If, you know, if practice is going to change, how do we supervise around that? Um, advanced training in the intersection of domestic violence, mental health, and uh, substance abuse. So quite, um, you know, many, many layers uh, in this kind of area. Okay. So you deal with child protective services. It sounds like do you deal much with court personnel? Um, it mostly in the uh, in areas where they are part of training. We do direct training for court personnel, um, and in uh, that has been judges have been a, a large audience uh, in the last few years, um, engaging them and getting them you know to the room to be doing this kind of training. Um, 
and I, and I have an, actually an, an interesting story about that, which uh, you know I think is meaningful. It's meaningful to us to to really see that. So, um, and I'll make it as brief as I can. There was judges in the room. David was doing a one-day training to give them sort of an overview of this. And two-thirds through the day, this um, judge stood up and said, you know, as a judge, I don't like feeling vulnerable, but I have to stand up and say that I work in a domestic violence docket. So this is my full-time um, courtroom, and I've been doing it all wrong. I've been making decisions without any rich information without a narrative that actually gives me a picture because what I've been seeing in my documentation is history of domestic violence, engages in domestic violence. And he said, and I hadn't, that gave me nothing. I didn't realize that. And I was making decisions based on what I saw in front of me, which often was a distressed mom uh, for fear of losing her children and uh, a, perhaps a very charismatic um, father who seemed to have better resources and was more in control. And I was, and he said, and I made horrible decisions for hundreds, hundreds of children. And he said, and I now realize that that I, you know, I've been making decisions based on no accurate information. And and that was profound, just in you know in that well, kind of a setting. Yes, I mean, for yes, a judge but then to the, admit that is, I, I mean, know. profound is a, is very amazing. profound. Very profound. Um, and then three months later, a, he a sent a poster child. You know, <laughs> right? You know, right. Because it even got that better. man on a trophy. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it even it, got better. It, yeah. Three months How? later, um, he sent an email to um, David, who is the um, you know the originator of the model, and um, and he said, "Here's what I've done to change my practice." Uh, to incorporate what I learned and the sort of epiphany I had. He said, if someone comes up to my court and hands me documentation that says history of domestic violence or that, he said, I hand it right back to them. And I say, do not come back to see me with this case until you have a clear documentation about the patterns of per uh, the perpetrator's patterns of coercive control, the harm to the children, the survivor's um, protective capacities uh, in the context of those behaviors, and the impact that this is having on children. And until you have that information, I will not hear the case. Profound, this is really profound. Amazing. It's just amazing. I have to tell you that a couple of years ago, I had, I put out a call, and you know our, our, our show is national and international, and I put out a call. I said, I want to talk to a family court judge. I want to talk to a family court judge. And after calls to different states, I finally was referred to a family court judge in Denver who, boy, she gets it. She gets uh -huh. it. She's the one you want to talk to. Okay? Great. So I had uh -huh. her on the show. And Wonderful. I asked this woman, no, no, <laughs> no, it was not. I asked oh. this woman, please tell me. What goes through a family court judge's mind when there are two people in front of him or her, one that has domestic violence in their history, and I purposely said that because I didn't want to be in a, well, he said, she said. I'm, I said documented right. domestic violence in their background. Mm -hmm. And another one who is, you know, I, who does not have domestic violence in their background. And I said, what goes through the family court judge's mind that he or she 
would actually choose to place children with the perpetrator, the, the documented uh, perpetrator. And right. this woman who supposedly got it, who came on high recommendation because she understood it, said, well, you have to understand. You've got two people ahead of you, in front of you. One is calm and in control and has his act together, and the other one is frantic, and she just can't even take charge of her own life, let alone that of her children. So <sighs> unless if the domestic violence isn't that bad, we'll give the, the children to the, oh. the father, the perpetrator, until she gets her act together. Oh, I practically fell off my chair. And oh. this is the judge who got it. <laughs> oh. is, I mean, that's God help exactly. us the ones who don't oh. I, I Exactly. You know? Exactly. I know. And think of, uh, I mean, uh, and so think about the families and the moms and the kids and, you know, having kids yeah. removed. And there's just too many stories um, of that, uh, of that exact story. Too many. Well, just and, too many. And, you know, the, the, the issue that these controllers control, and they can control themselves, and they can come across looking very fine. And yes. you have a mom who is in a courtroom facing off against somebody that she knows has a, a, an unblemished record of getting his way. Mm-hmm. And she's terrified that she's going to lose her children, and you expect her to have it all together. Right, uh, right. Um, you know, clearly there's just so many. We can tease that out for hours. That's right. Yes, that's right. Yes. You know, I mean, yes. that judge did not have a clue. And what it not sounds like to me is that have you had much success actually training judges? I know you said you've had some come uh, in this one what remarkable case where he actually got it. But do you find judges normally resistant to this kind of education? Uh, well, so the, I think the, probably the um, biggest reason that we don't uh, have opportunities, so we have great opportunities at conferences and things where there are judges. Judges are, you know, and I'm generalizing here, but judges aren't the first group to say, we don't get it and we'd like some more information. So could you come and, you know, and, and, and help us through that? Um, and and frankly, they don't know what they don't know, and so uh, and our training is you know we are invited into train. So we the limitation that we have is that we can't mandate anybody to be in a training, um, and and agencies who invite us into train may or may not have those kinds of relationships with the judicial, um, you know, judges and prosecutors and those kinds of things. When they do. And they do invite them. It's it can be very successful. Um, so it's it's more of a resistant population around training. And I used to be told a fair amount, especially in Eastern Canada, um, that we can't do training because it might uh, increase bias. We have to be objective and unbiased. And somehow they made the link to learning new information might make them biased instead of objective, which <laughs> Don't has zero logic. Me. It might influence how I think. Right, right. And and I you know and I can't be whatever, coerced, manipulated, I can't, you know, I so so we're not going to age in this. We've you know, we've got all the training we need to be good judges up here 
and um, and so there's a there's more of a resistance in that setting. And again, I'm making generalizations, but um, but as a you know as a group, they are um, we find that they're less uh, available, willing, um, and able to be in the room, especially for you know for uh, any kind of um, in depth. I mean, we get it that you know it's hard for for many practitioners to get. Um, to be away from their office for uh, four days. So the, the training is really, the four-day training is really uh, focused on practitioners and helping them to change their practice, which, and then we can do overview days to share with a wider audience so they understand the model, they understand what's going to be different in their community, what they might see different in documents, what they might hear differently, and how it impacts families. And that's a very successful um, kind of introduction to it. Um, but, but it is a harder population to have that kind of, um, of in-depth. It's getting better, I have to say. We've been the last two years been doing a, a whole lot more work um, with that population and successfully. When they're in the room, it's a little hard. The model is, is really when everyone sort of gets immersed in it a bit, it's a little bit like, how are we not doing the work this way, right? How mm-hmm. is it that we're holding, we're holding survivors responsible for perpetrators' behaviors? How did we get here? And if, you, and if you can help us shift that practice for better outcomes, then we're in. It's the mm. bigger discussion. People don't know what they don't know. Yeah. Well, and the the issue with the judges, of course, is judges are judgmental. <laughs> they they right. have to have confidence that they know yes. how to evaluate something and they have to make decisions. So, right. um, you know, I don't know whether that's personality or whether it's, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, but I mean, it's kind of like the nature of the beast is to yes. be confident that you know how to judge and that's that. Um, that's right. So, that being said, it still becomes a huge issue. It would be interesting. I would love to have that judge who got it uh, be on my show to talk about that. Um, because right. that is a huge realization on the part of that judge. I mean, that's just an amazing thing. Um, yes. Okay. And I'd so, like to share that as a piece of hope. Yes. Yeah. So that's one. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's one. Okay. Um, the other issue that seems to pop up so frequently and I must say I I, this embarrasses me because I'm working on my PhD in psychology and I gotta say that a lot of psychologists and psychology reports and evaluations that I read I'm just mortified I am absolutely mortified Mm. and psychologists are called on all the time to make evaluations yes. uh, uh, that judges will then rely heavily upon uh, in making decisions. So right. um, do you work with the psychologists a lot, or is that also a reluctant group? That can be a reluctant group, and we would actually, you know, sort of stand on the premise that we not pathologize domestic violence and that we not pathologize survivors and, and perpetrators um, because this, this, this is about coercive control and choices. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think we would hold that that's um, 
that's an area where we would like to see agencies within the system move away from using that as a tool. Because as mm -hmm. you know, domestic violence is not caused by mental health. It's not caused by substance abuse. It's not caused by any of these things. And when we pathologize it, we can set it up to be so if they could be, you know, fixed in some way, that the domestic violence wouldn't be an issue, which just is mm -hmm. not at the core of the work about perpetrators stopping their behaviors, that it's a choice that they're making. Even if they are coming from a trauma history, you know, we talk about in the child protection world, they, their trauma history is important. And in, the, in that sort of bubble of child protection work, it is not an excuse and can't be used in that setting. They make choices in all other settings often very, you know, as you know, often very productive and very well respected at work and in the community and all those other places, um, and that they make choices to be controlling and abusive and violent in their intimate uh, families. So that is not a trauma issue. That is not a psychological issue. That's a choice around behavior issues. So there's a place okay. for perpetrators to, to be able to deal with their trauma, and they may be childhood victims of domestic violence themselves, and in the child protection setting and system, that is not the goal of child protection to heal a perpetrator's trauma. The goal is, is for them for to intervene with perpetrators to stop behaviors that are putting children at risk. Right. You mentioned earlier about mapping a perpetrator's behavior. Can you go into more detail about that? Well, how is that done? Uh, did, did your organization come up with that um, methodology? Uh, we, uh, tell me more about that. Uh, we we um, designed the tool uh, and, and used the tool. It's one of the most popular tools that, um, that workers take away with them. Um, because it's very concrete. So uh, it's really looking at, you know, in, in, important to make sure that we're grounded in the perpetrator's patterns of behavior in order to be doing assessment uh, for around anything else. So this is about um, what are our sources of information around the perpetrator's patterns of behaviors, and obviously survivors and children are a huge source of information, which is one of the reasons that we talk about and train around skills to partner with survivors in this work, acknowledging that they are doing things towards the safety and well-being of their children. It's not, it's not saying survivors, that no survivors have issues that don't need to be, that need to be addressed because that can be the case. But if we're talking about domestic violence, and the, and the uh, and they are a survivor. It's important that we be able to work with them, and partner with them because we have the same goals. Uh, because um, child protection and survivors want exactly the same thing. They want the violence to stop and the children to be safe. And when you can come from that place um, of working together, it can be creating a partnership um, that can get can move that forward. So what we need to be looking at is what do we know about what the perpetrator has done to harm the children and what they've done around coercive control. So it's, it's literally capturing that. So it's not about um, 
it's very specific. It's not about the perpetrator uh, uses name calling. Um, that doesn't, again, that doesn't tell us anything, right? So assessment and really getting down to that is really, if there's name calling, it's about saying, what does that look like, right? So it's about describing and documenting what are the names that, um, that he calls. It's not okay to say the perpetrator is intimidating because we don't know what that means. It could mean many things mm -hmm. on a spectrum. So what we need to be talking about is what does that actually look like? So it's like, tell me what, that, tell me what that's like. Um, so it's capturing, it's, it's training workers to be doing assessment that's very uh, behaviorally focused and fact-based. It's a really important part of the model so that we're not working with biases around you know, having low expectations for fathers and high expectations for mothers. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's being able to not have gender double standards in the system um, to be doing this work. So it's a really important piece of getting behaviorally focused so that we're not making assumptions, which really helps around, um, helps around gender, helps around race and ethnicity it, if we stay fact-based and behaviorally focused, and that's what we're capturing, that's what we need to be able to do this work and to be able to identify what does this mean to the children. And if we're really getting down to the perpetrator's behaviors, then you know we can also do assessment around what has mom been doing in the context of what we know about what he has been doing or has done, what, what, what does that help, how does that help us to understand her choices and decision-making around the children, right? Because out of context, we, you know, anybody who's worked with survivors has probably had times when we've all said, and why did, why did you make that choice? Or like, that? you know, because it, out of context, it doesn't give us what we need in order to understand that. And so well, the mapping tool. Survivors' behaviors are always questioned. Um, oh, exactly. And, and doubted. Um, so that's right. Yeah, that doesn't. Yeah. Making bad choices. We hear a lot about survivors making bad choices. Um, and mm -hmm. it really talks about if, if you, uh, you cannot uh, make that kind of assessment unless you're connecting her choices and behaviors, et cetera, having to do with the kids within the context of the perpetrator's behaviors. Because when we, when people say, well, um, uh, you know, I don't understand why, you know, she has to keep, you know, calling everybody. She's making everybody crazy because she keeps asking, can you give me a ride to school or to get, you know, Sally here or to get, you know, to go to the doctor or whatever. And they're like, you know, they've got a car. She needs to take more responsibility. And without the understanding that, that the perpetrator withholds transportation, then you can't be giving context to, to why she's asking for that kind of thing. So we talk, yeah. So it's really important to be thinking about, um, um, you know, in that context, how is that, that the perpetrator's choices are parenting choices. So when a perpetrator is choosing to withhold transportation, they're making a parenting choice. Because how are those children, you know, what if there's a medical emergency? How are they getting, are they even able to get to extracurricular activities or to medical appointments or to school or to any of those kinds of things? And we're asking 
um, we're asking everyone to be thinking about their choices as parenting decisions when children are present, when there are children. So if you think about, you know, a perpetrator's choice to show up uh, at their partner's workplace or text her, you know, 100 times a day or do all of those kinds of things and she loses her job, his choice to do those behaviors has now impacted child and family functioning because that's a change in income perhaps. Maybe there's even then a um, uh, the uh, necessity to move or they're evicted because there's one less income. And that we need to be tying back to perpetrators' choices as parenting decisions has caused this child to have to leave a neighborhood where they felt comfortable and had friends they have to change schools now because they have to move to a new neighborhood. They may be moving away from extended family and support systems. And we can, we can trace that back to the perpetrator's choices and choices as parenting decisions. Does that make sense? That makes sense to me. Um, yeah. Knowing what I know and based on my experience of, of having interviewed others, Knowing what I know about um, court systems and um, decision makers and people who so heavily influence the family fate when domestic violence or intimate partner violence um, rears its ugly little head, I'm kind of surprised at how forward-thinking your organization is and I'm wondering, you know, it, it sounds like it's pretty well accepted. Is is this just in the Denver area or is this nationwide or no. how is this? No, what's happening? This, 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 um, the genesis of this would have started um, actually in Connecticut where David um, many years ago was doing perpetrator programming and, um, and um, running perpetrator programs. And child protection in Connecticut at that time, and this would be, you know, 20 years ago, would um, ask him to come and help them understand perpetrators better. They knew that they they didn't know how to work with them. They were afraid. Um, and so he began to consult with them on that. And the genesis of the Safe and Together model was born. Um, at this point, we are um, international. And we have um, over 100 certified trainers um, around the world who are doing this work. So the, the, I don't know, I never know how I feel about this, but the issues are the same around the world. I never know whether that gives me a little relief or that just, it feels so awful, but, um, but the issues for child protection around the world are exactly the same. So the model is stable and its application is infinite. And as a result, we, as the work began and people began to really engage in this and change their practice, we were no longer able to um, to um, to do all the training that we were being asked to do. And uh, places like Scotland and Australia are um, countrywide taking this on. So when we talk about a domestic violence informed child protection system. We're talking about the child protection system itself and all of these other agencies and organizations that we talked about that touches these families, including judges, including law enforcement, including all of those. Um, 
and what you know what they determined was that they um that the the issues that we hear when we travel and train are exactly the same around blaming around uh holding survivors responsible for perpetrators choices you know perpetrators choices and behaviors look the same it's you know children are being harmed really similarly there could be cultural differences um but it doesn't change the work and so we began a uh, trainer certification program a few years ago uh, in order to build capacity around the world where people were looking to make these changes. And it's very exciting, very exciting. And if you're talking about a domestic violence-informed systems, then we're talking about everything from frontline work all the way to our laws changing to be able to be responsive to this, our policies changing within Child Protection Agency, but all the other agencies and and as judges and all of that that we've been talking about. Um, so it has to be system-wide. And so we are, uh, I'd leave actually on Thursday for, um, for Brisbane, Australia to train another cohort of trainers. Um, and it's very exciting. That will be, there will be 60 trainers in Australia. Um, and we have um, soon to be 40 trainers in, uh, in Europe. Uh, many of them, Scotland was really kind of a um, a champion around this work and have, you know, they have a coercive control law. So there does not have to, you know, so as you well know, there has to be physical or sexual violence for an arrest. No longer in Scotland is that true. There's a law that, that, um, that covers coercive control, which is amazing. And that really well, came out of all of this kind of work. That that law was initiated a couple of years ago in Great Britain, um, and it looks like right. it's traveling uh, from there outward, which is, you That's know, we're, right. we're way behind on that um, as far right. as you know, recognizing coercive control. Although I have to tell you, a couple of years ago, I did a training with um, probation and parole officers. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was in Virginia or someplace. And I was prepared for kind of a frosty little, you know, not really paying much attention to what I had to say kind of reaction. And I was just, because I was doing uh, um, the training on coercive control, and mm -hmm. I was absolutely gobsmacked by this room full of people who immediately started going, well, you can't do anything. We can't do anything because it's not against the law. But if we have somebody on probation or parole, I mean, it, the whole room just started brainstorming what we could do, you know, from our right. local city ordinances that are, you know, that are against the law and which we could nail them on that. Or, I mean, it was just the reaction to coercive control uh, issues was just uh, so rewarding. Uh, you know, probation and parole people Isn't were ready um, to tackle that. So it, that was very rewarding for me. Um, yes, and that's really the work that we're talking about is collaboration to, to, be, to be changing the, um, the face of this. Mm -hmm. Now, I, can, I don't have any compunctions about saying domestic violence is a um, problem for uh, women, okay? Um, yes, I know the statistics, and yes, I know that there are some men who are abused, and yes, I know, blah, 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 but overwhelmingly... We're talking women, okay? Right. And 
I am I I'm guileless about saying this, and and I really kind of resent how we keep him. And and this my father was abused uh, by my mother, mm-hmm. so I mean I am well aware that this exists. However, I lose total patience with the insistence that we somehow or other give the impression that it's 50-50, just as many men are violated as women, just as many men are abused as women, blah, blah, blah. No, that's not true. Right. And I think that right. by constantly hammering on that, what we end up doing is watering down the significance of the problem for women. And mm-hmm. whenever you say women, you also say children, because right. even in this day and age, the women are the primary tied in with the ch- children kind of thing. Um, right. What when when you are training um, people? I mean, how do you address that issue of the, the, this kind of assist, insistence that we not just acknowledge uh, that abuse can also be, you know, uh, uh, male, um, uh, not just perpetrators but male victims? How, do you address that at all? I mean, how do you address that yes. while still being accurate? Yes. Um, yes, we we have to address it um, because, as you know, um, doing training, uh, if if anyone in the room feels shut down around that, and and there's always there's always some who feel you know defensive that they need to hear us say that men can be victims as well, which is which is true, and it's fine. Mm-hmm. And what we talk about is, you know, in examples that you know, we all as faculty and um, part of the Institute use examples are real examples from cases and families. And so we talk about them in, and, and, you know, 90% of them are, are cases where there's a male perpetrator and a female survivor there, but we make space for the model is designed to, to address gender double standards and that kind of thing. And yet it is, when it's completely focused on facts and behaviors, it doesn't have to be about this is about all men being perpetrators and all women being survivors. Because if we stay focused on facts and behaviors, then that's where it's at. So you can do great assessment with the model in same-sex couples. If, there's, if there is a male victim, a female um, uh, perpetrator, it's through the assessment around facts and behaviors that you get to the perpetrator. So there doesn't have to be a, uh, a, a you know, a, a either or um, in that kind of a way. It's a really important piece of the model. So we talk about the assessment being gender neutral, but not saying that the approach is gender neutral because domestic violence is a very gendered, um, as a very gendered thing, and and making space for that as well. So so we you know we acknowledge it, and it's not uncommon for you know those in the room who um, uh, who often are struggling with that, it's not uncommon for them to have had a family member who was a man who, you know, was, you know, abused in some particular kind of way or emotionally abused or, or all of that. And that they, you know, people just need to hear their experience will be validated and acknowledged in the room. And the model makes all the space in the world for that because it stays on an assessment framework that's it doesn't have to be making assumptions that's a really important part of the model that it doesn't make assumptions um, and generalizations that it really stays focused um, on coercive control and facts and behaviors 
One other comment that I have, and I'm looking at the clock, so I'm, I might be sounding like I'm rushing you, <laughs> and I apologize. Go ahead. Um, no worries. But one other question that I had was when you were talking about assessing and mapping the perpetrator behavior, um, I think for so many of us and for so long, we've had to couch anything about domestic violence into these clinical generalized terms in order to appear objective. If you went into right. court and said, oh, well, he does this, this, and this, and it makes me feel this, this, and this, and that, boom, you're immediately discredited because you're whining, you're, it's personal, you know, uh, it, they don't want to hear it. Um, and right. so we purposely couched everything in these technical terms that were basically meaningless uh, as to explaining behaviors. But now what you're talking about is going back to uh, applying those, you know, getting rid of those objective terminology things and talking specifically about how did that make the child feel. Is there right. any resistance to that kind of an approach, either on the part of psychologists who are writing the reports or uh, child protective services that are re writing reports or in the court system? I have to say and I've been doing this um, this particular part of the work for um, where are we now for you know like seven or eight years that when 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 people get to the you know the assessment piece and when we really start talking about facts and behaviors and they have their own cases and their own families that they work with and when we do that application and use case studies um, and all of that it it really is not a stretch for people to understand the difference between if you said this couple has a history of domestic violence or this is her third relationship where she's you know chosen something around that if we stay really focused on the what actually happened and the facts and behaviors it's it's not a stretch really for anyone to go well i guess it really does make a difference if you tell me that the couple engages in domestic violence, what do I know about that? I don't really know anything. And yet, if you give me this information that, since we've been talking about, that is on this mapping tool, which is so specific and gives me the narrative for this family and this child, it's not a, it's not a hard stretch for people to be like, this one is way better. I mean, we do a lot around documentation and looking at you know, what documentation will get you where you want to go, and how does documentation look right now, and what does good documentation look like, and it's it's night and day, so it's not, people aren't like, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know that I want to, you know, why do I need to know that, you know, that he slapped her three times in the kitchen, and then, you know, dragged her, in there? and it's like, well, because if we say that there was physical violence, your imagination can go wherever it wants to go. It can be that, you know, um, that there was a, a you know, a, a slap or that there was strangulation. And without, when we're, when we're not dealing with concrete facts and behaviors, we're, we're missing out on the severity of the danger and risk to the children and the survivor um, and, and really missing, how, then how are we doing determinations on if this child is safe? Right, and what do we know about their safety and their well-being? Right, so it's not just that they're not being hit, but what is what is the perpetrator's choices meaning to their everyday life? You know, and are they? You know, who is nurturing them? Who is giving them stability? Who is, um, you know, giving them space to heal? Those kinds of things. Are we doing assessment around who's doing 
well, how is the survivor dealing with that with the children? And what is the perpetrator doing towards that or not? And, and then how, and if we know that's what kids need, then how are we capturing that information? And that's how we get to the place where it's not just, you know, kind of ma 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 or, uh, or generic. Um, uh, because, you know, every, every family where there's domestic violence, there's similarities, but there's differences. Right, and that specificity right. is crucial for us to be doing work to be changing uh, the future for those survivors and children and perpetrators. Families are choosing mm. to stay together. We need to be able to be doing the work towards perpetrator change. It's, we can't banish perpetrators to an island. Um, and children, you know, perpetrators can and fathers can be really important to children. So we we need to be careful. You know the Saving together model isn't about good and bad people, right? It's about behaviors and good and bad behaviors. And that can, you know, that we can work with. Case plans for change Mm -hmm. need to be as specific as the behaviors that we've learned about. So if in in their case plan, yeah. Yeah, I, I, we could keep going for a long time, but I see our clock is, is coming to an end here. I really, yes. really would love to know more about this. I would just love to. How can people learn more? Where can they go? They can, uh, you know, a good first stop is to our website, which is the safeandtogetherinstitute.com. Um, and on there, there's great blogs to read. There's lots of video um, to to hear um, you know, all of us and David in particular talking about the work and the Safe and Together model. Um, if anybody is in Denver or wants to come to Denver, our uh, annual conference, our North American annual conference is uh, in November, the 13th to the 15th, and information would be on the website. Um, and yeah, and um, and in, in general, go ahead. Oh, I, I'm just looking at the clock, and I need to rush you along a little bit. But yes. So the website is the place to go for more information. Heidi, thank yes. you so much for, for enlightening me and sharing with me what you are doing at the Institute. And I hope that you can come back sometime and give us more information and give us an update on where you're at. Thank you That would be much, fabulous. Heidi. Yes, thank and you thank so you much for having me. It was lovely. Join us again next week for Three Women, Three Ways. Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.